WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. And you're listening to WERU. That's 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor, streaming at WERU.org. We're listener-supported, volunteer-powered, and a voice of many voices. It's 70 degrees out here in Orland, Maine. Our transmitter is in Blue Hill. Our, our, our studios are in Orland. And we're getting ready and, and uh, excited about the new name for Pet Sounds 2, which is Let's Talk Animals. It's coming right up right now. Good morning. This is Dr. John Hunt. And we're here with our new name to an old show. Uh, formerly Pet Sounds 2.0, but it's now called Let's Talk Animals, from Aardvarks to Zebras. Uh, I've decided to change the name because we talk about animals other than pets, and I'm hoping this is uh, will continue to interest our, our listeners. So it's our once a month, every fourth Thursday at 10 a.m. It is live today, so you can call at 469-0500 if you have any questions or share uh share any stories or add any um, information to this program today. Today, uh, I'm very lucky and honored to have the director of the University of Maine Animal Health Lab, Dr. Ann Lichtenwalner. Good morning, Ann. How are you? Good morning, John. I'm fine. Welcome to be, glad to be here. Good, good. I am too. Uh, I kind of uh, hooked Ann through a friend, uh, Dr. Jim Weber, who talked on my show last August, actually, and his daughter used to work for me at the clinic, uh, so I've had a long history with Jim, and we were up, I was up at his daughter's uh, house the other day, mm-hmm. and we were talking, and your name came up because I was thinking of a, a show, so uh, you can blame Jim for, for <laughs> me getting in touch with you. So we have uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, the main purpose of, of this show today is to get my listener, give my listeners an opportunity to get to know what the Diagnostic Lab does for the public. I think uh, it's a diamond in the rough. I think people think whatever goes on at U- University of Maine is just teaching young people and um, research, but that's not the case. Uh, so uh, first of all, I'd like to have you tell us uh, your background and how you got to University of Maine. Sure, I'd be happy to do so. Um, first, I want to just quickly say that the Extension Lab at, at, and that University of Animal Health Lab is actually mostly funded now by Cooperative Extension. Is this really great mixture of service to people and research and teaching. So we kind of managed to do all three of those things in the lab. And honestly, that's one of the reasons I am here, um, because uh, I'm kind of excited about all those all those things. And I'm a been a clinical veterinarian. Uh, my training was at uh, Oregon State University in the vet school there. Um, and then I did a PhD in reproductive physiology at University of Idaho, which was mostly based on working in reproduction in horses. Uh, and also I did a lot of work in llamas. So that was fascinating and fun. And that led to some time working in a postdoc at uh, University of Washington and actually doing um, some uh, primate work uh, helping to support people who were working with primates. That was interesting. Um, and, out, of, out of Washington? Uh, at, at, at University of Washington, Washington in Seattle, Washington. 
And uh, during that time that I was doing that, I had a really bad horseback riding accident, and that kind of changed things for me. I then went down to the Caribbean and worked in um, in a clinic down on Grand Cayman Island mm-hmm. for a few years, and I came back to Oregon um, and worked clinically for a little while, and then I got a chance to go back down to Cayman and help start a vet school. And uh, we got that going, and they sold it, and uh, I came back to the United States, heard about the job at UMaine in 2007 when I heard about it, and uh, jumped at the chance to come so, come work here. So you didn't really know what Maine was all about then? Well, I that's a good question. I actually kind of did. My brother had lived and worked here in the uh, 1970s and 80s, and he said, boy, if you ever get a chance to come to Maine, it's your kind of place. You would really like it here. And I have to say that's really been the case. Seems to be a common story with people, transplants mm-hmm. that people... I know people or heard about it, and mm-hmm. then when you get here, you're you don't want to leave. Just mm-hmm. yeah. so, so you got this. Um, uh, you applied for this job at University of Maine. As what position was the? Uh, oh, the you, one I'm in. Yeah. yeah so it's a sixty okay. percent cooperative extension and forty percent in the School of Food and Agriculture. Um, so I'm I wear two hats. Uh, my primary appointment is working in the service area, working running this diagnostic lab and handling the cases that come in. So so what are your responsibilities? Um, uh, sure. besides, so you have, so what do you, what do you, yeah, what are, you have many hats. So just briefly, would you tell us what you yeah, do? Well, um, teaching, research. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a 5% teaching appointment, so, <laughs> which I regularly exceed. But um, I interpret that as uh, like mentoring a lot of students, capstone students and honors students. I'm, I'm actually have become uh, kind of associated with also the Honors College, which is a great institution yes, and a lot my, of fun to work with. my daughters are honors oh. at U- University of Maine. All right, yeah. great. So that, it's yeah. a great program. So you, uh, you're you like a like a uh, committee head kind of. Yeah, yeah. Person. I advise um, students. I, I act as their thesis advisor. So students yes. want to do their, you know, they've got to do like a capstone project, but in honors there are additional things that they right. do. It's a bigger commitment for the faculty member who takes on those students, but it's really rewarding. Um, and I don't remember exactly how many I've done, but I've done that uh, most years that I've been here. And then I take on the senior pre-veterinary students usually, sometimes animal science, not in the pre-veterinary um, uh, concentration. But I take them on as their capstone advisor as well. And that's always really great too because we get into all kinds of crazy projects, wonderful stuff, um, usually related to animal health, studying something that uh, helps us be able to either understand what's going on in both the domestic and wildlife populations here in Maine or that actually helps derive some kind of therapeutic tool that, that could help um, you know, the both livestock and, and wildlife managers in Maine. These are very bright students, and I bet they come up with questions or research projects that you wouldn't even think about. Oh, it's it's really fun to work with them. You know, sometimes they, they come in and they just want to join in on something that's maybe already funded and rolling along, and they contribute a big, you know, piece to that. Sometimes it's a, it's a sometimes humble piece, but an important piece, and those can be really rewarding projects. But other times, they come in and they have ideas already, and, I, and some of those, if they're, if they're worthy, if they can defend them well, and if I really think they're going to make progress on them, I 
I try to give them resources and, and, and some of my time to, to make it work. So That's what makes that program so good. My, my daughter's got so much out of that. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. Uh, the honors program. So you do uh, some some teaching, guiding. You do some research. You said. Yeah, I do. So yeah. right, do you have research projects that you're? What percentage is that? Yeah, well, twenty to eighty. Well, yeah, it's so funny because they they tell you, okay, you have a full time equivalent. It's a hundred percent of your time, and then we split it this way. And you just you you try to adhere to that. But things go in one direction or another, so you're always borrowing from Peter it's to pay a, Paul in terms of your time. Percentage. It's very flowing percentage, <laughs> but 35% of my time is research. So what I do with a lot of that time is I collaborate with others, and um, and so you know, for instance, right now we have this really great group of new faculty that are interested in one health and the environment, and that is uh, an area that, along with some biology colleagues and actually people in the Climate Change Institute and, and the School of Economics, we've sort of coalesced a group of people who want to work in this area that has to do with looking at problems in animals, diseases, etc., that may affect people, like zoonotic disease, um, and, uh, and then also thinking about plants and the environment and how all these things kind of coalesce together to either improve health or decrease health, uh, both of the beings, living beings, and the environment. So now, now that sounds rather broad, right? You know, like it's kind of the ecology of everything. Um, but uh, it's it can be quite focused. And so um, recently uh, we've – well, we just – one of the people that we hired, Ali Gardner, who's a, a wonderful vector ecologist, um, has done some really good work in uh, prior to coming here, looking at how invasive plant species help uh, harbor uh, mosquitoes that are uh, likely to bear some of these uh, insect-borne diseases that we worry about, some of the encephalitis viruses and things like that, so that changing the um, invasive species content of your forest or your or your landscape can change the risk factors for important diseases that we worry about. And she's now part of the team. Um, we're excited about you know the kind of things that she's going to bring to our. Our group, um, we have, and we have people that work in uh, what we call human dimensions, and so these are people with um, they they've got biology background, but they're they're very comfortable working with human behavior. How do we influence or measure human behavior, or influence? Yeah, definitely influence human behavior, change human behavior. So, you know, can we? I mean, if we look at how farmers use their landscape. And we know, for instance, more about what the risk factors for Lyme disease are at, in certain kinds of landscapes. And one of our grad students, Griffin Dill, is working on this right now for his PhD. Um, one of the aspects of that that'll be interesting is seeing how people, how can we get that information into the hands of people who could use it? I personally know young farmers who have uh, had their careers somewhat disrupted by Lyme disease. And that, you know, just isn't acceptable. Small farmers are so important to what we do yes. here in Maine. So this integrative approach is, uh, can be very productive. You have, you said, economists, and uh, this is the way it should be because everything's interchangeable. And I think that vec- the, the, the tick thing with the, the farmers is a good example of that. So... Um, 
that's uh, another responsibility you have. Uh, so you're doing some research. Yeah, that's. Uh, you, yeah. you have a couple projects. I have a couple we, projects. We can, go, and we can get back to that later. Ask me later about okay. moose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 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 The, the moose question. Okay. Yeah. And then your uh, a big responsibility is running the what used to be called the University of Maine Animal Health Diagnostic Lab. It's a new name now. That's, what is it now? Okay, so now um, as we move into a new building, um, actually we'll it's a renovated a building. We'll talk okay. about that in a minute. But the okay. name, the name. Originally was the Animal Diagnostic Lab when I came here, and at that time, I, after much discussion in our group, um, we changed the name to the University of Maine Animal Health Lab because we felt that reflected that we were doing aquatic animal health and terrestrial uh, animal health and avian uh, health. Um, and then um, now with the new building, we'll be changing it to, uh, well, it's still somewhat in debate, but... Essentially, it will be um, the acronym we thought that would work for now is PALE. So it's the Plant, <laughs> yeah. Animal, Insect Control. Um, uh, let's see. That's got P-A-I. Yeah, L. Uh, lab. So anyway, <laughs> we're still getting used to it, as I said. And we, we may change that acronym. So it's not official know. yet. Not. We've been using that in, in most of our, um, of our extension, um, you know, communications about this but it does it does yeah. convey the inter- integrative part of, of what you're doing and that's what we need to convey yeah because i think a lot of people don't don't realize that um so the the history of the of a, a lab a diagnostic lab um has this when did they first appear and where they first appear at land-grant colleges i mean where where did they come from because this is I think something the public really doesn't know about and is so important for the public. Well, you know, and I, I know I'm glad you asked that question. Um, and I have to say that I'm not as well versed on that overall history as I probably should be. Um, what I can tell you about this particular lab is uh, if you if you look at the state of Maine and the importance of Maine to the poultry industry over many, many, many years, um, University of Maine and Maine in general were big movers and shakers in the poultry industry. And uh, and this changed in the, um, I would say, 1980s to 90s huh. dramatically. And so the University of Maine um, Animal Science Department, which had been primarily a poultry science department and was quite large with many, many faculty members, changed. Um, and I believe that a product of that was was this what was a diagnostic lab for the poultry industry um, morphed into a smaller service lab that also took on other types of farm animals. Uh, then I think around the early 2000s, somewhere in there, perhaps the mid-2000s, there, there was a decision um, from the College of Natural Sciences, Forestry, and Agriculture to try to move away from having service labs, so to know, to to concentrate on research and teaching, and to get away from the concept of service. Um, Financial reasons, um, politics. Uh, as as they say, that was a uh, above my pay grade. To, <laughs> I don't that's know. A, that's a good out. I really <laughs> don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's also before my time, but. Yeah. But one of the things that happened was that our cooperative extension service, which is an important part of the land-grant university system that serves um, 
as kind of a go-between. They they basically do, you know, translational research in the sense of taking more basic findings and getting them out there to where they can right. be used and help people. And that can be in the, you know, 4-H with teaching kids um, on many different levels. And then also, um, of course, in agriculture, I'm more familiar with it in agriculture. So Extension stepped up and quite literally said, we'll take that over. The education so part. We'll take over the service part. The service part. part. Yeah. So we will uh, support the lab. And so... Oh. So okay. over and, – and some of that final transition to that actually occurred during my time here. I came in 2008, um, <clears throat> and they really have been a, an extremely um, great support. And the lab – our lab really belongs to Cooperative Extension now. So if you look for our website, um, it's hosted by the Cooperative Extension Right, I noticed site. that. Yeah. And that hosted meaning uh, supported financially as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so, so, the, so the, the budget – Right. And the university comes out, you're in their budget, um, the yeah, budget, yeah. something like that. Again, above my pay grade. That's yeah. <laughs> but John Rebar is the director of, uh, has been the director of cooperative extension the whole time I've been here, actually. And um, so he's a great, actually, someday you should probably have John. Oh, I got to write his name. <laughs> he's a great guy. And he's been, uh, you know, he's he's been a very strong proponent for extension and um and really, you know, one of the big reasons that we have this lab, along with, uh, of course, Jim Dill, um, who is the head of the Insect Control Lab and Plant Diagnostic Group. So, uh, we're, This is WERU 89.9 in uh, Orland, Maine. This is Dr. John Hunt uh, with our new, new title show, Let's Talk Animals, From Aardvarks to Zebras. And we're talking with Don, Don Ann Lichtenwallner, uh, the director of the, uh, the Diagnostic Lab, or PAL, as we call it now. And uh, I wanted to get into uh, what, what kind of things does the lab do? There's, this, there's different types of labs in your labs and different, type of ser- different types of services. So uh, I don't know where you want to start first. The, the, uh, the labs, there's diagnostics, histology, things like that. Yeah, so can sure. you kind of yeah. – in terms that I can understand as well. Sure. Um, even though I'm a veterinarian, that gets kind of above my pay grade. Well, one so. way I could do this um, that might be a, a, a nice way to do it, a nice narrative way to do it, is I could tell you about the people who work in our lab. Because we've got this great staff, and um, they have been the backbone of the lab um, ever since I came here. and an amazing place where there is virtually no turnover and the and they're hard working uh, really truly dedicated professionals every every one of them and we brought in some new people as time has gone on who also have been uh, tremendous to have in the lab so i'll start with our lab manager who's debbie bouchard and okay, debbie I'm just going to interrupt you just for a second okay. i just wanted to remind the listeners that we are live today and I want you to call 469-0500, 469-0500 if you want to ask a question uh, or even make any kind of statement uh, for Anne to address. So I just wanted to – sorry I interrupted you, but I wanted to make Quite sure right. the listeners can call 469-0500. Okay. I appreciate it. I won't, okay. won't well, interrupt you anymore. No, thank you. Uh, no, Debbie's been great. She is a uh, someone with an enormous amount of experience in aquatic animal health, and she's a microbiologist. Um, she's uh, actually currently also has been appointed as the new director of Sea Grant. I'm sorry. I misspoke. The Aquaculture Research Institute – 
which is affiliated with Sea Grant, but at any rate. Um, so she's, she's really, really knowledgeable about um, aquatic animal health. And because of her work in the lab, we do uh, fish research, a fair amount of it, and uh, contract research for companies that are interested in testing out a new vaccine or looking at a new feed additive or something like that for fish. And so we've had a tremendous amount of success in that area. And, uh, and a big portion of the new building will be um, associated with that kind of work on fish health. Um, and then um, we have also, and oh, well, and Debbie does a lot of cell culture work and is very um, well-versed in uh, especially fish virus um, work. So cell culture sort of implies viral. Right, yeah, for uh, the most part, yes. And, and she's... Fish. Now, what are what else is included in aquatic aquatic mammals? Or well, we actually uh, do not do much with aquatic animals, um, aquatic mammals rather. Um, but uh, you know, UNH Inga Sador is the pathologist there, and she's well versed in um, aquatic animals. So you can turf things off. Mammal, turf. right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, basically. Uh, you guys probably work together. I mean, we, well, on we cooperate with other universities. Uh, we do, especially on research. Uh, yeah. And then we have a collegial relationship with the, patholo- uh, the pathology or diagnostic lab at UNH. They've got a great lab, and they're, um, they've just built a new lab in the last couple of years, wow. too. So we've had a lot of conversations about that and planning and things like that um, as well. Uh, well, let me let me go to the the lab sections quickly, if I yes, may. So, um, so then we have uh, we have Donna Bean. Donna is run, is she's our histotechnologist, and Donna has been running our histology lab. So she's the one that actually, like, if I do a necropsy, and then I have, you know, um, a bunch of little bits and pieces of tissue in formalin, and then I just deliver them up to Donna, and she does the sectioning, staining, and preparation so that we actually have micro- microscope slides to read within you know a few days of, of the Very work. Good. So that is terrific, having her help. Um, and then we have um, Emily Thomas. Emily is, uh, actually, she's a UMaine grad who stayed on and worked with the lab after, after college, and she runs our Salmonella lab. Um, so she's the one who uh, basically is very responsible for safety of Maine's egg supply. <laughs> Just saying, it sounds like a remnant from the poultry. Yes, days. very much so. And uh, so the FDA mandates that egg farms of a certain size have to test their environment for Salmonella enteritidis every so often. And so our lab is the uh, National Poultry Improvement Plan certified lab in the state to do that testing. And so it's it's an important part of enabling our poultry industry to do business. Um, We encourage small flock producers or even mom and pop you know, two dozen eggs, you know, a week, I don't know, to, to test uh, for salmonella. It's important to know whether it's in your eggs. And SE, salmonella enteritidis, is the one that gets in the eggs. So that's what we suggest. You don't test the eggs, test the bird's environment. So anyway, that's Emily Thomas, and the salmonella part is a big part of what we do. Um, and then we have Brenda Kennedy-Wade, and Brenda is our bacteriologist that does our more general uh, bacteria and also does uh, the milk culture work. So we do Very a lot important. of screening. Yeah, What we call mastitis is inflammation of the udder in um, cows and other ruminants. Uh, if people suspect a problem, they send us milk samples 
and we test that. Brenda is the one who's responsible for doing that work, does a great job. And then uh, as well, you know, if you think your animals may have worms of kind, one kind or another, Brenda does um, the uh, parasitology um, to help people understand whether or not they have a, a big worm load in their animals. Um, so then we have... Uh, Sarah Turner. Sarah is someone who's come to our lab, uh, another humane graduate, and does uh, PCR polymerase chain reactions, so some of the molecular diagnostic work that we do, for both for, more for research than for diagnostic service. So translate that. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, she gets to play with DNA. <laughs> okay. So that's uh, how with you... With regard to disease? In regards to disease, okay. yeah. Right. And... Um, so um, then, of course, our administrative assistant, um, Melissa Babcock, and Melissa's terrific. Uh, if you call in with a question, you're probably going to be talking to Melissa, and she'll be able to help direct you um, in terms of submitting uh, samples for testing. And um, I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. We have students that come in and work for us um, uh, you know, and and oftentimes we, if we have a big project coming up, and we usually do, uh, we end up hiring um, oftentimes students part time to work with us, and we always have students that are work study students that are helping us with various and sundry parts of what we do. Um, so, who does the uh, necropsy? That would be me. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, um, ably assisted by. Um, Either uh, one of the staff, sometimes students uh, or master's students um, that are, uh, we all have to be vaccinated for rabies um, and uh, and take a lot of safety training and wear protective equipment. Um, Explain what necropsy is. Maybe some sure. listeners uh, don't know that and be... So sure. what, what is it that you do? Yeah, yeah, good. And, and without getting too uh, yeah, yeah, well, descriptive. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I'll, I'll try to avoid bit. that. Yeah, <laughs> um, necropsy is essentially. Uh, performing a postmortem or an autopsy. Autopsy is a term we used to always use just for people because it's like self taking apart. Right. Um, now sometimes they use autopsy for animals too. Um, but it, it's the uh, careful and thoughtful and con- under controlled conditions sort of taking a body apart after death to see why the animal died. And, and uh, sometimes uh, it's, it's what we call gross necropsy is where you just perform the uh, inspection where you're taking the animal apart more or less and looking inside. Visually, to, just the... It's visual, right? That's the, that's the gross uh, yeah, necropsy. Yeah, and also, right, and also acquiring samples that you may test one way or another for right. whatever it is that you suspect based on your inspection or necropsy. And then um, you go on sometimes to do um, a microscopic sort of necropsy, and that's histo- histopathology, where you're looking. You know, remember, I mentioned Donna Bean's work in the histology lab, so. We may uh, take samples and then she prepares them and then we look at them under the microscope later and then try to go back and piece it all together. Oftentimes we end up sending out samples. Um, so if we, uh, we suspect um, you know, a toxin ingestion um, or poisoning, um, any of those things, we may send things out to one of the many great um, labs that are available to do outside testing. We don't do a tremendous amount of virology in our lab. We don't do a lot of this um, more uh, instrument and personnel intensive testing. So we send things out um, not infrequently. And when we do, um, just 
a, a quick word on costs. Um, all our we're very supported again by cooperative extension, so we do charge, but we charge enough to cover the basics, um, and we don't even really usually charge enough to do that. But um, the other thing that we do is we we charge the client the cost of what the other lab charges us, and then we charge for the shipping. So that sounds very fair. We yeah, we want to make this available to people. We're not trying to put any other vets out of work, and that's not our intent at all because we regard the vets as also our clients. Um, but we want to provide a needed service where there's um, a gap and try to fill that gap in an affordable way. And uh, necropsy with with some of the farm uh, animals is mm-hmm. important because in herd health, in other words, you're looking at the health of the herd, sometimes when one animal passes away, you need to know why to help the others, not to necessarily just know why that animal died, but that will help prevent the other members of the herd from passing away too. So that's very, very important. Uh, I think pet owners, uh, when when their pet passes away and they they do a a necropsy, um, it's more, you know, why did that pet pass away just for their own information right it's not as important it's important to it's them it's very important in terms of herd them. health though it's agriculture it's, it's very right. important and and i'm thank you for bringing this point up because it's a really important distinction this lab was founded to help really i think poultry primarily poultry owners find out why uh, or whether a, you know a group of 10,000 birds is endangered if they lose you know 25 in one night. So so that was the whole idea. So one of the things that has informed my decision-making and shaping of the lab over over the years has been trying to stay true to the idea of helping agriculture. Um, Sometimes we have pet owners call us with questions. Um, And uh, so we have a policy that if you are a if you own, if you're calling about a companion animal question, whether it be like a citizine bird or your dog or your cat, that we don't handle that because really in Maine we like most states we have a really good supply of very capable uh, private veterinarians who are companion animal veterinarians. We do not want to compete with those people. Now, if a uh, one of those companion animal vets wants a necropsy done, then they can call us directly. And if they send us the animal directly and they have a, a unique situation where we can be of help, we're happy to help the vet. But that's different than directly serving the client with the dog or cat that has died. And uh, so I just want to make that clear for people. I think we'll, we'll go into that uh, on the other side of the show. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Ann Lichten-Walner from the Diagnostic Lab, and we're just going to take a short break.
Okay, this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras, our new uh, title to our show. Uh, today we're talking with Dr. Ann Lichtenwalner from the Diagnostic Lab at University of Maine. And uh, we are talking about um, who, we, who she services. And if you listen to the first half of the show, you may have this idea that uh, the, the lab there is uh, just waiting for you to call them up or bring an animal for help. And that's not necessarily the case. It's a little complicated. Um, we have um, the, the diagnostic lab treats different groups differently. So I'm going to have Ann talk to us about the vets, the farmers, the pet owners, the wildlife, fish, that sort of thing, and, and how a, uh, a listener out there, if they need help, if you're a, uh, if you're a farmer, what your criteria, what would you do, the protocol, if you're a pet owner, the protocol, things like that. So let's go into that. First of all, the, the veterinarians. Okay. Um, yeah. Because that's something, as a veterinarian, I'm retired now, but um, I was, uh, I always knew you were there. And I think years ago, I started back in 1988 up in this area. Yeah. The services are much different than they were now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're so much more, it's so much more available. Uh, so you weren't really center of my uh, <laughs> my uh, help, but I think sure. last couple of years you began to be, and I, and I appreciate oh, that's that. that's terrific. So tell us about your how you serve as veterinarians. We'll go to the pet owners and farmers. And sure. Um, well, um, you know, we're kind of ancillary to the veterinarians. So the veterinarians in practice, they're your first you know, resource. And so I, I try to encourage people to, you know, whether they be a dog and cat owner or a, a fish owner or a, a farmer, try and have a, you know, a relationship, know a vet um, so that you can call them up with a question. They're local. They're open, you know, so many hours a week. They probably provide some kind of emergency services or they refer you to one. And they're the one with the bottle of whatever who can, you know, give you what you need when you need it. Um, and hopefully that's affordable for you. So um, that is a, a thing that I try to encourage people to have. Um, it's important because, for instance, with food animal vets, if we don't support them, if our, if our producers just ignore them and try to do everything, do it yourself or call extension, we, we want you to call extension because we hope we can help provide some info, but your vet is a really important part of your team. And so try to Get to know them. You know, put it in your budget that you're going to maybe have them out once a year. Help you work on your vaccination plan or something like that. But consider that even if you have every single chicken that you own has a middle name as well as a first name. Think about having a vet that you know. Um, and they know, and they and they know your environment. Yeah, they know who you are. Yeah, um, as a farmer, um, and you don't. I mean, they call you up, and you're as a diagnostic. Yeah, uh, lab, I mean, you kind of you kind of in a uh, you don't you don't know you don't you don't know the farm. I mean, you don't know all the farms. So right. your your personal vet, your local vet, has a better feel, and they can call you and feed you information. Yeah, if to, they to if ask, they feel it's questions. needed, or or um, you know, or at least they're they're part of the team. They and you might be sometimes you're the person who's maybe. Um, you know, the animal just died and you want a necropsy. You're a farmer, you have a pig that died, you're worried you want a necropsy and you know that you've got to get it into us soon. Um, 
So maybe you can't reach your vet. You end up calling us and saying, hey, I want to bring a pig in, but Dr. Smith is my vet. Um, And we'll say, great, here, fill out the accession form, bring it on in. We'll do a necropsy. We'll copy Dr. Smith in on our findings. And so both the client and the the vet will get the findings, and then the vet will help find a solution. Um, And we're available to provide more information for the vet or the client if needed. But we don't operate as the primary care veterinarian. Um, It isn't, I mean, I am a licensed Maine veterinarian, but I don't have a truck full of stuff. I don't have a pharmacy. I don't even have a DEA license. I do not do the kind of clinical practice that I used to do years ago. Um, And uh, it's fine because I'm very busy doing everything else that I do. But I just want to make that distinction for people because um, while I'm happy to give some advice, I have to... I have to um, behave just like all the other vets do. I can't diagnose over the phone. I can't prescribe things. Um, I'm sorry, I can prescribe things, but I have to have a vet-client-patient relationship just like everybody else does. And and frankly, I would much prefer that a, that a private veterinarian be the one who's actually taking on the actual treatment of the case. Um, but that doesn't mean that where, where it's not where it's appropriate, I can't help. I do, but I have to follow the rules just like everybody else does. So if you're if <clears throat> if you have a farm animal, uh, or a farm, uh, and you do have a relationship with the vet, which you prefer, but even if they don't, it is possible for you to take on an animal for necropsy directly from the farmer. Yeah. But pet owners is a different story. Tell us about if you have a pet and you needed the pet owner felt they needed your service. Sure. What do we have to do there? We've had these things happen before where maybe a pet owner, a dog or cat owner is angry at their vet or thinks their vet is the one that caused the problem. Um, We, because of the primary funding of the lab being for livestock, and that's really where our attention should be going, uh, and also because of the very uh, complex, sometimes legal outcomes of these sorts of things. They're complicated, and they're going to take a lot of resources and time, including court time sometimes. Then the university isn't interested in taking care of that. They would like that to belong to the private sector. And so if, if I, for instance, were a pet owner, I had a dog, and the dog died during surgery, and I had some kind of reason to think something, you know, was improper about how that happened, then I guess one of my options would be to call other veterinarians, not extension. That's really, again, I'm just using that example because extension doesn't want to provide that service. And so we, we don't. <laughs> but if you're a vet and, you say, and you've had a small animal die, you're curious as to why and you feel like you would prefer the, the university do this, that's fine. We'll do it directly for the vet. We also, um, I mean, I have some expertise in small animals, but that's not my primary area. Where I spend my time and thought these days is basically working on either livestock species uh, and some, or some wildlife. And so, again, um, you know, it may be better to take a small animal elsewhere. So, And if a veterinarian, let's say, uh, I've had this a couple times in my decades of being a vet, an animal came in, passed away, and it, it was suspicious, um, and I used your, your lab. You mentioned with the farm animals, you write up a report for the farmer and the vet, but for pets, the report just comes to the vet, right? Not- all, all, absolutely. Okay. So all communications about the case go to the vet. 
all billing goes to the vet. Right. Everything is done as a vet-to-vet communication. For pets. For Yeah, for okay. companion animals. And, yeah. and I will say that, you know, the state and town animal control officers um, and animal welfare group uh, do also use our lab for uh, necropsies of cases that come through their shop. So if they are investigating something, there's some dead animals, they oftentimes will send us, and we, uh, those necropsies, we find, we have just, you know, discussed, and we, we believe that this is appropriate for the, for us to serve the state in this way, so. And, and their organizations, so. It's, right. Yeah. And they, they work for the town. Yeah. Now, this is WERU 89.9 in Orland. You're talking, uh, you're listening to Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks Zebras, uh, formerly Pet Sounds 2.0. This is Dr. John Hunt. Talking, talking to Dr. Ann Lichtenwallner about uh, the Diagnostic Lab, University of Maine, and how how it uh, helps the public. And we were talking about who, how you, who gets how how you get samples, uh, how you how the public uses you. And we talk about the vets and the farmers and the pet owners. Uh, how about uh, wildlife? Sure. How's that? Um, how does that work? <laughs> okay. Um, well, so wildlife. Our lab, a number of years ago, I think it was around 2010, um, that there was a, a proposal to put together a consortium of uh, diagnostic labs in the Northeast uh, to serve the wildlife community. So, um, you know, the managers and the agencies uh, and that are concerned with wildlife here um, modeled on something uh referred to as squidus, which is, uh, I think, the Southeast Center for Wildlife Disease Studies or something <laughs> like that. I, I, I'm really bad at that acronym. But anyway, so we, we called it the, the Northeast Wildlife Disease Cooperative. And so it's uh, it's kind of a collaborative group of, of a number of labs. Now, I don't know what our total number is now, but it's the it's pretty much the entire Northeast. And um, and so Maine's one of the member labs, and um, so our area of uh, most expertise would be moose, uh, as we've been working with Inland Fish and Wildlife to help them diagnose moose um, deaths uh, for, you know, where, where they occur sporadically um, f- since, uh, gosh, I think around 2014, no, yeah, 2014 or so, mm-hmm. 2012 or 14, and um and that's been really, really interesting, and it's 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 actually one of the reasons that we have this One Health and and the Environment um, Center for One Health and the Environment uh, and on this research focus that we have because of the interesting health questions that have come up with that. Um, so, uh, lots of student projects as well. We we've, we've been um, you know pretty impressed by the overall large population and good health of Maine moose, but they do have their parasite challenges. And, uh, and so, you know, we also um, think that uh, the parasites, and there, there are a number of parasites of interest, um, they're worthy of study. And so we are collaborating with IFNW on several different um, looks at uh, how the ecology of the moose and some of the other um, animals, such as coyotes, interacts, uh, 
One thing that we found a few years ago was that there was uh, a cyst in Maine moose lungs, not in, not uncommonly, and that cyst was due to a parasite. It's actually a tapeworm called Echinococcus granulosis. Echinococcus up here? Oh, yeah. Whoa. It's common. Um, I didn't know that. Well, it, it, so so you you perked up at that, yeah. and, and I certainly <laughs> did when I found them. I thought, holy Toledo, what yeah. do we have here? So we... Um, so basically, I, I went back and I contacted Bill Ferret, who's a parasitologist at Washington State University with whom I worked when I was in vet school. Great guy. And he's published in this area. Um, and in the West, they determined the, the genotype of the echinococcus um, with the help of some Canadian collaborators, Emily Jenkins and Jana Schur and, their, and Emily's lab. And so he said, get a hold of those guys. They're up in Saskatchewan and um, see if they'll help you with genotyping this. And so I did, and, and they did. And so we published a paper um, a couple of years ago on the genotype of this. It is what they call the sylvatic form. It's the G8 genotype of Echinococcus granulosis. Now, that's good news for us because that genotype is very, very rarely associated with human problems. Good, because um, that's one of the... Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, so I want to just hasten to say, <laughs> cooking your meat well <laughs> is always important. And, uh, and that if you gut your animal, the moose, if you hunt and you gut the moose out in the woods, do not leave the gut pile uh, where um, predators can get at it. Uh. Because the life cycle of this thing goes through either a dog <laughs> or a canid of some kind. And in, in this area, that would be the coyote. And then the coyote passes the infective form in the coyote feces, which contaminate some aspect of the moose's environment. And then the moose gets infected and the, and the cycle goes on, uh, where people are not at risk from the moose. If your dog were to eat tons and tons of these and get infected with it, then those infective eggs might, might be a problem to you and your family. So, obviously, hand hygiene if you're cleaning up after your dog, and uh, and very easy, tapeworm your dog. If your dog is out in the woods a lot or you have some reason to think that your dog might have exposure to moose, lungs, or liver that might have this parasite, well, then tapeworm your dog. Your vet can help you with that uh, once or twice a year, and it's no problem. See, this is how research a diagnostic lab filters down to pet ownership absolutely right and that's, and that's really cool this was a cool piece because we put this out as a, a, a bulletin to um, veterinarians we published an extension little quick thing and we got that out to the veterinarians via the main veterinary medical association mm-hmm. and also just contact and uh and then there's a publication um, on that as well in the in the moose literature in the journal ALCES, which is kind of the go-to place for people doing moose research <laughs> and management. And uh, and then we're we're having some more follow-up on that um, in uh, the form of uh, looking at coyotes and seeing. Uh, we think that actually we're publishing. Uh, well, actually, I have a student going to a national meeting this year. I'm giving a poster on our finding this particular genotype of Echinococcus granulosis in coyote intestines wow. in Maine. So we're we're closing that loop in an ecological sense, um, which is you know interesting. Yeah. If you have any questions for Anne, you can call four six nine zero five zero zero. This is Dr. John Hunt, your host. Let's talk animals from aardvarks to zebras, and. Uh, we're talking about uh, what kind of got off on wildlife, which is fascinating because it filtered down to our dogs and cats and us. Very good. Uh, get back to moose if we have more time. 
of course, I'm always, I always run out of time every time I – every show. So I wanted to get to uh, two things, submitting samples in your new facility. Um, sure. In terms of submitting samples. Um, sure. I'm going to go right into that. But before I do, yes, please. <laughs> I want to say, let's not forget, uh, we've done a lot of research on milk and milk safety and an organism called Prototheca, which is a uh, un- very unusual algae that can mm-hmm. cause mastitis in cattle, which we've had a problem here with, and we did a study on that, and also sheep and sheep diseases. So, and our lab does some testing, screening testing for a disease called caseous lymphadenitis, CL, um, and you can, it's something you can prevent in your flock. It's a chronic problematic disease, and our lab will do the screening testing for you um, if you want, um, and then sheep parasites. And I think Jim, so, Web- Jim Weber's working Jim, on that. Yeah, well, I'm, yeah, I'm a co- I'm a Copii on some of the the sheep stuff, and uh, it's been great to see. Um, but that's sheep parasites are a huge issue. Submit examples to our lab. Um, you can go to our website. Um, if you just Google Maine Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, you'll get our website, the University of Maine Animal Health Lab, and we've got um, instructions on there about submitting samples, including filling out the accession form and how to get to the lab. Um, we're open. Monday to Friday. Uh, we don't take samples in over the weekends. I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then calling 581-2788, you'll get um, Melissa Babcock, uh, our very capable administrative assistant, who will help guide you in terms of uh, how to do that. And also, uh, I think that includes how to keep the, the specimens or samples uh, viable. That's right. Uh, so yeah. Between the time you... Right. Get the sample to mailing it. Sure. All that kind of stuff. If you right? if you lose an animal, um, chill the body as soon as you can. And I know we've we've had people do things like get big bags of ice and pack the abdomen. You know, like lay them. I mean, we had this person that just did a beautiful job of delivering a, a large pig to us in wonderful shape. Who put the put the animal in a tub and packed ice on the abdomen and then and then wrapped the whole thing up in, in black plastic and got it to us in great shape. So oh chill it for 24 hours. If you have to wait more than 24 hours, I would suggest it be frozen. Um, that can be tough to do, so do your best. So only freeze if it's more than a day. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's best not to freeze. Though, best right? not to freeze. Because that, that does influence your histology. It, it, it does. However... It's better to have a, a, a frozen but in pretty good shape sample than something that's gone bad. Yeah, that, and they do. <laughs> and when they do, there's there really is not there's much. Not you can much do. There's not too much we can do. I bet yeah. that happens a lot. Yeah, <laughs> not pleasant. <laughs> and your farmers are saying what happened. You say I can't give you the answer because it was too late. Yeah. Uh, it's not the farmer's fault because they could have found them out in the. Field. Yeah, a lot of these things happen, and sometimes it's worth it anyway because we may find something out that's really quite clear-cut, like uh, what they call blackhead in turkeys. Um, wow. You know, that's that diagnostically, that's not a big challenge. It's really clear-cut, and those changes will, you know, will survive for a little while. So. Well, good. Well, tell us about your brand-new facility. Sure. It's great. Um, it's a big building on Godfrey Drive, so it's not right on campus. It's very short, like five minutes away from campus in Orono, um, and it's, I think, 28,000 square feet, so it's big. And about 15,000 square feet of that is lab space. So. You, was it a, a 
another, was it, uh, did you take over a building? We did. Uh, the university purchased a building that had been utilized in that tech park. Um, and at the t- there was, I think, a sensor lab that was there and uh, various and sundry different things. Right now, NOAA has been, uh, has had some offices there and I think Fish and Wildlife. I see Oceanic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, and they're going to stay there, I think, for some time, I hope. And it's great having them. They're good neighbors and yeah. it helps us keep the building um, occupied, which is good. And we're doing a <clears throat> tremendous amount of uh, remodeling there and refitting. It will be uh, a, um, <clears throat> a disease lab that will be capable of isolating itself better from the community of students and, and you know, et cetera, at the university. Uh, so more biosecure and definitely newer and more up-to-date, um, and we have a necropsy, beautiful necropsy area that also has a viewing room adjacent to it, so and, and that many people may be thinking, oh, that sounds gross, I don't want to go do that. But um, <laughs> You don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to, but it's excellent for teaching, and if yeah. a client brings an animal in, and if they want to know, you know, like if it's a farmer, and they lost a chicken or something, and they want to know what does this look like because I may want to I, w- I may want to learn about this. Right. Then we can have them in a biosafe environment, right across a glass partition with a you know sound connection, and also a camera so that I can zoom in on things. And like let's use the example of blackhead and turkeys. I can teach the farmer at the same time as I diagnose the disease. That may help him in the field. Sure. The cam- that's a good idea with the cameras and the screens. Yep. So they're on the other side, but they can look at a TV screen sure. and see a close-up. And the right. way cameras are these days, they're so they, good. They do a great job. And then you can record it, too. Yeah. Do, you ever, do you ever record them and give the recording to the farmer? Do you ever do that? So they can take it home and <clears throat> no, review I, if they... <laughs> no, I, I don't actually now use any video equipment in the, in the necropsy room. I do photograph. And so we always have a person using, um, you know, protective... Equipment and, and it's all hygienic. But we take photographs during necropsy because if we see a, a real teachable point, then you know we want to capture that. In the reports that I give people, I always try to give the, the, word, the words, then a picture, and explain, here's what you're seeing. That's so, again, I'm, I'm educating people as I do the necropsy. And hoping that that will help in the future. Yeah. That, that's the, the big thing. Yeah. Uh, anything else about the new facility? It's 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 open and running. No, not yet. Oh no, no, no. It's uh, still in the. Yeah, it's it's it's. We were we were in there last week. I took the whole crew through the lab crew through, so that they could just see. Okay, this is where this goes. This is where that goes. But so the benches are sorry, what we call the lab benches. So the the actual furniture, I guess, of the lab, uh, that's not in yet. Uh, but um, you know, they had to redo. I mean, it's. When you say you took over a building, it's like, oh, well, you changed the rugs, right? No. <laughs> we had to redo everything, all the yeah. ventilation, et cetera, because we have to have a very biosecure environment. Uh, if we're going to be working with infectious agents, it needs to be very safe. So the airflow has to be <laughs> oh, yeah. a certain direction. You have filters mm-hmm. in the airflow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Yeah, we have several different airflow systems for the different types of labs that are in there. So it will be very biosecure. Is this biosecure uh, criteria based on federal standards or just uh, – just based on knowledge. It's it's the, based on um, uh, requirements uh, for um, accreditation for um, for lab like the veterinary labs, uh, but also it's based on uh, the expertise of the um, the uh, planners and architects that we hired, uh, who have built uh, you know many health 
care type facilities in other places like Boston and so the public can feel fairly uh, safe that uh, if you're is, dealing with something that's bad, it's going to stay there. Absolutely, that's and that's that is comforting. we are thinking about that every day. Yeah, and, I bet, I and bet. it's partly training, it's partly containment, and it's definitely forethought and how we do our standard operating procedures. So if people want to um, look at your uh, all the things that you do, you're online, mm-hmm. and what's the best address to? Um, well, again, um, I think. Um, is it pale? Is it UMO diagnostic? Yeah, I, I would just say go for the just just type in Maine Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, and you'll get our your first hit will be our I believe will be our lab, so University of Maine Animal Health Lab, and it has a link to the new pale. Um, and actually, you know, the Insect Control Lab um, at University of Maine, which is also part of Cooperative Extension, they have a nice link and section on that too. They have, uh, and there's a little video of you talking about ticks. Oh, there's probably videos of many of us talking about many different things. You can find a lot of interesting stuff in there. And, and it's well laid out. I, I looked at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you're a, just a pet owner or farmer and you go into that website, you can pretty much get around very easily. So I highly recommend good, people good. to yeah. to, um, to investigate that. We do have, we have a couple minutes, two more minutes, if you could tell us a little bit more about moose, your research, uh, weird things that you may have found with them or... Oh, man. Because well, moose, moose hunting is big in the state. So. Moose hunting is really important to the state. I had no idea. When I came here, I, I thought, yeah, charismatic megafauna, you know. <laughs> pretty cool. When I think of Mo- Maine, I think of moose and lobster, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I didn't realize, you know, how many there are and how uh, the Maine moose population is um, is really actually doing pretty well. Um, and uh, why I see the ones that don't. Right, you know, so um, but we also were able to cooperate with uh, with IFNW on this radio color moose study, and so they've been studying healthy moose uh, for a few years. And what tends to happen is we do lose a certain percentage of the calf crop every year. But when you think about the reproductive rate of moose, um, they really would overpopulate Maine pretty fast if there weren't that kind of biological loss. And so um, lungworms are a big problem. Winter ticks are a problem. That's a different tick than the deer tick. Right. And we're investigating whether other diseases may be uh, in the background there. So you're trying to keep the moose healthy for... Not only the just the environment and state, but for hunting purposes. And well, and also nature viewing. I mean, it, it's so yeah, fun to see it's moose. It's huge up in Baxter. Yeah, it, oh, is, yeah. it is fun. Yeah, it's They're very exciting. Amazing animals. Well, I want to thank you, and for coming uh, today, taking time out of your busy day. Uh, to me, I, I, I'm much more enlightened about your what you do up there at UMO. So I want to thank you again. Well, we appreciate your program, and thank you for being a great interviewer. Oh, well, thank you. So this is uh, Dr. John Hunt signing off for Let's Talk Animals, from aardvarks to zebras. And until next time, just keep talking to your animals. You're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, streaming at WERU.org. And we 